Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kia ora, and welcome to Artcast Aotearoa. This is a podcast supported by Creative New Zealand's international program, which looks at issues facing artists and those working in the arts through a global lens. Ko Timbe Taku Ingoa. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and producer based here in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. Today, I'm speaking with American sculptor Margot McMahon, a lifelong environmental advocate working since the 1970s across a range of disciplines and mediums to bring attention to the global climate crisis and to local action we can all take. Enjoy. Margot, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Tim. It's a delight to be here. I'm um, honored to speak with you on your podcast. Now, I read that you started your career as a, a scientific journalist in the late 70s. Can you tell me a bit about your switch from journalism, um, where I believe you did focus on environmentalism uh, and, and what experts were finding out about climate change, over to art? Yeah, I was a, a pre-med and, and art major, as well as literature, in college, and um, I took a class at my senior year in environmentalism and wrote for Scholastic Magazine um, to begin with as an intern and realized that this was the true crisis of our time. And if I could make an impact with telling people about the environment, um, then we could curb what we are living through today. And it could be worse, but it's pretty bad right now. Um, so I wrote to begin with articles and I, I worked for uh, world book encyclopedia. So we had a worldwide reach to Bangladesh and other, um, countries, Africa, where there's severe droughts, um, countries where there's huge problems. The warning did go out, uh, in 1979, 1982. Um, but then around the mid eighties and nineties, uh, it became political. Whatever mm. word was used, global warming, um, it was turned into a political conversation in, in the United States. I think other countries were much more responsible than us, um, especially uh, the beginning of the 80s. So I then tapped my art career and w earned an MFA in sculpture at Yale University and have been doing environmental art since because when you put words on it, they can be argued as words. Uh, we've gone from global warming to climate change and many ma manifestations of volatile weather caused by too much carbon in the air. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple sentence, and I've been saying it since 1979. The carbon is causing greenhouse effect to warm the earth 
It's also being absorbed in the Southern Oceans. They have 93% of our carbon, hard telling how much more they can absorb. But in the meantime, it's killing the coral. And the coral only covers 1% of the ocean floor, but it feeds not only 25% of ocean life, but 500 million people are dependent on coral reefs to block the severe weather hitting their shoreline, for their food, for their substance, for medicine. We need to save this coral. And a big push that I'm doing now through painting, because coral is so vibrantly colored, and what's happening is it's becoming bleached as carbonic acid in the water uh, kills the actual animal part of the coral. Mm. Coral is animal, mineral, and vegetable. It is a plant as well. And so first the algae or the vegetable dies and then the animal dies out and then we're left with bleached coral. It does seem like quite a fitting metaphor for what we in the oceans are going through that there's this intense um, visual spectacle of this beautiful thing that's slowly getting bleached over time due to what we're doing. Um, Before we sort of delve uh, more into the art that you're doing at the moment, I'm interested in what the experience has been like for you over the last, you know, sort of four decades, you were on the front lines of when this information was coming out from scientists, that it was provable, that climate change was real, that it was man-made. Um, you saw the dawn of it getting hyper-politicized um, and then sort of living through in your adult life and your professional artistic life, seeing the reaction or lack thereof around the world. What has that been like for you? Uh, it At each stage, I was offbeat a little bit from the trends of the art world, um, from the trends of the political world. Um, but I also uh, grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I knew that if you have something that you really believe in, you, that will propel you beyond what um, your friends or neighbors think. <laughs> so in 1979... Um, the Jasons came out with the information that not only will the earth continue to warm up if we keep on our track, but when the glaciers melt, we are losing that reflection of the sunlight back into the atmosphere, and it will very quickly compound and, and change much, much more quickly. So I started to make art that was representational to show the preciousness of life in the 1980s, where we've just come out of pop art, where, you know, it's um, tools and and mm. things that are manufactured at a large scale. It's um, take a hummingbird and make it eight feet high mm. It's to change the scale of it. And yes, that it also, to me, that would be, look at how gorgeous this hummingbird is. Now let's protect it. So I... It, in addition, I sculpted people, individuals who are setting the course of history in, in my mind, the right direction um, to live together peacefully, to add to their community, to be a, a, a steward of the earth with um, sustaining the land. It was those were families that over generations protected prairie and farmed responsibly and took care of our Great Lakes, one of the greatest sources of water in the world, really. 
just in my lifetime, Lake Michigan has changed temperature. It's now a clear lake, not a murky lake like it used to be because of the zebra mussels, the opening up in um, the 60s of the um, canals have brought in all kinds of new species. And, you know, now we're trying to fight um, fish that are potentially going to jump into the lake and change the ecosystem one more time. Could you tell me a little bit about the tree project that you're a part of with the Chicago Park District collaboration? Yes, we now have 55 sculpted trees in Chicago parks. And, and sorry, could you specifically just talk me through what, what does it entail, sculpting a tree? These trees have been condemned due to the ash borer, the locust borer. Uh, Dutch elm disease is still carrying, killing our elm trees. Um, each one of these trees is one of the grandest ones that the Park District has chosen to preserve as a symbol of a grand elm or an ash that that uh, is particularly well-placed in a park. So the park district trims the branches, sometimes specified by the artist. And we sculpt the trunk either by adding artwork to it in the case of a flock of very colorful and dramatic cloth birds um, or resin birds flying through branches or um, in one case, the amazing ash borer piece. Uh, there were bronze symbols of ash borer on um, pathways to show that are were carved in with a router to show how the ash borer chewed the the vital part of the tree to keep it from growing. So in Chicago, we lost at least one hundred and thirty thousand ash trees in Chicago parks alone. Wow. Due to the ash borer and invasive species, which is brought in by climate change. So we wanted to say something throughout Chicago and the parks. We have an enormous amount of small and large parks in Chicago and parkways. And the parks are scattered throughout neighborhoods. So not only are we bringing this message to people who already love these tree trunks and had loved the canopy that was there earlier. Mm. But we're addressing art deserts so that people who don't ordinarily have artwork in their neighborhood now have something to reflect on. It's so amazing hearing you talk about your your recent work with the paintings of the coral and what you've done with the trees and your whole history of sculpture and communicating through art. I wonder if you've got some thoughts about the apparent ineffectiveness that we've had from scientists telling us about climate change and if art now has an important role to play in communicating what's actually happening to people around the world. Thank you for asking that question because that's one of the biggest changes that I think we've seen in the United States. We have a pattern that if a subject is political, you have to hear 50, 50% in the news, 50% Republican or Democratic. Once the environmental subject became political, newspapers felt they needed to treat it 50-50. So even though 99.9% .9 of scientists believed global warming was a scientific fact, they had to give 
airtime on the news, radio, magazines, and newspapers in their own mind mm. that we had to hear the other side of the of the viewpoint. And that is how our journalists are trained. Um, For the New Zealanders listening, that this this would sound very outrageous and potentially not quite right. But unless I'm mistaken, this is about the fairness doctrine, right? Which was brought in during Reagan? Exactly. All of this and why I switched to art to say the message is because the conversation he started then catapulted into ridiculous direction, that this is not political. This is a scientific exploration, discovery, and message. Mm. And we need to keep it that way. And so what have you found shifting from the scientific journalism side of things to still being committed to communicating this message to people, but doing it through your art practice? Well, in one way, the... I'm surprised the Venice Biennale has, for the first time, taken on the subject of environment through the voice of Indigenous people. And I agree, we need to listen to the people who have been in the area for 5,000 years to understand the best way to work with the soil, the air, um, and the, the entire environment of the water. So I have so many um, thoughts on that, but I'll stick to the subject. I'm sorry. Um, so right now, the Venice Biennale, which is one of the major art exhibits in the world annually, it has not addressed the environment in all these years. And it's a very political vehicle also for artists. So I'm delighted that the art world is taking it on in more of an embracing way. I do think the message has come across with the tree project locally. And all it takes is one artist who's working on the tree to communicate that point. And then people are like, oh, another reminder, because we can't go to the newspapers or the magazines for reminders any longer. We have to get the word out however else we can. And I think your um, program here is a very good way to get the word out. One thing that we are discussing on this podcast is how we can change art practice ourselves and what we're doing to um, be more be be friendlier to the environment with the things that we're creating. I imagine that must be quite a hard uh, sort of tension that you've grappled with, especially with sculpture. I mean, I, I, I really don't know the ins and outs of sculpture, but I could imagine that it would involve some pretty intense chemicals or or tools or do you sort of struggle with your art practice and how you square that against the environmentalism that you communicate uh yes i have um definitely made some of my statements in resin which i'm not happy about but it's what we make bathtubs and car bodies with <laughs> you know it's yeah. it is a it is a material that doesn't uh communicate my message as well, but I can get my message in several places about this bird or this person that has value and our decisions should be made about life on earth. And I, uh, I'm pretty strong, but for me to carry wood around and tree trunks around, yeah. I, I do it, but it's very, very heavy. <laughs> 
Yes. So I have to uh, realize that I am working with what I can to get the message out. And I do struggle with all the materials, uh, casting in bronze, which I've done for many, many years, is, uh, you know, it does have chemicals. It's I'm incredibly careful in the studio and with my assistants that we're not injuring ourselves with it. But I would say to the beginning of your question, the most important thing we can really do is stay put and take care of our own soil. Because if we water the flowers in the backyard during what we're having now in Chicago, we go from a week of rain to a flash drought because Mm -hmm. of high heat temperatures. If we can keep the small water cycle of watering the flowers that evaporate and create a circular motion of temperature in our backyards uh, and on our parkway, in our local park, if we water the trees that are drying because of the flash droughts, we're contributing to the huge equator to temperate zone drop of water cooling the ocean and dropping in the temperate zones to water where the where the food source is in the United States. I'm speaking from as a Midwesterner. Mm. So the at the Gulf of Mexico, the heat in that ocean rises up uh, as it evaporates. There's a natural cycle where it goes towards the poles in either direction. And when it hits the cooler weather in the Midwest, it drops. And that's why we have good soil. Right. Everything we do in our backyard to keep our little water cycle going helps the larger water cycle. And with so many people migrating, so many backyards empty right now throughout the world, those cycles are getting interrupted. And some places that had water aren't getting them and drying out, and people are having to walk longer distances carrying water. So we have to keep what we can locally going. And that's why I like that the Tree Project is, we do have national and international artists in it, but it's mostly local artists saying something to the people in their own city. It's quite a beautiful message of localization for another reason as well, because I think one of the themes of the sort of climate uh, catastrophe that we're on the brink of at the moment, maybe at the dawn of, is that it is very arresting. There's a lot of despair around and people feeling incredibly helpless and out of control. There's a lot of widespread anxiety, particularly by the younger generation at the moment. And in my own personal experience, the best way that I've found to get through that is focus on a really small area around you that you can actually have an effect on. And I suspect that that's part of where this arresting global despair is coming from, because we are trying to focus so much on the entire planet all at once, which of course is an impossible thing to have any effect on. There's also one other key ingredient, the do what you can where you are and um, realize that there are policy people who are making other decisions, but in a very democratic way, we can control our own lives and actions. All we need to do is reduce carbon right now. If we reduce carbon to reach the Paris goals, the earth will heal. 
Watering your flowers helps a lot too. <laughs> um, but the other key ingredient is to build a community of people because you'll be able to change faster with a community. Um, I'm involved in an online web page that's called Green Blocks Initiative. And if you live on a block, talk to your neighbors and come up with things that you could do together. On our block, we bought rain barrels together. Now we live next to one of the freshest, biggest basins of water in the world. Mm -hmm. But our water, when it goes into the drain on the street, gets sent now through engineering to the Mississippi River. So if we have a rainstorm, we want our water to stay local. And if we attach a barrel to a gutter, we're capturing some of that water and we're diverting it right into our vegetable garden or our flower garden or our pond. So those kind of actions were easy to do when we ordered a dozen water barrels for the block and we all decided together, everybody has now a vegetable garden in their backyard so that we're not transporting lettuce from other parts of the country during our growing season. Now in the winter we have to, but we don't have to do it year round. That's a lot of carbon that goes into the air to transport the lettuce. If you and your neighbors are doing it together or you have a group of people that you communicate with, you feel better supported. We had chickens, a little statement on our block, <laughs> but it's kind of a quirky thing and people could choose to um, laugh about it, but I discussed it with my block all the families embraced it. The kids love to run around and catch the chicken that, yeah. that escaped the backyard. And it became a really wonderful part of um, all the children's growing up. But that's having a group to do it with and not feeling like, oh, there's that quirky thing going on again in somebody's backyard. I'd like to just return back to the sort of art world side of things and ask you, what responsibility do you feel artists have um, about communicating or advocating about climate change? I think it's crucially important because art directly communicates on an emotional level. When somebody sees something that they're like, oh my God, that's so gorgeous, it's been created by an artist, they all of a sudden are reminded of the preciousness of that symbol that it has become. And with that preciousness, they will have a better awareness to care for whatever the symbol is of. And I carve birds in wood. So all of a sudden people think about why is she paying so much attention to birds? Well, mm -hmm. birds are an indicator. And the birds that I carve are from a 300-year-old tree that was blown over in hurricane-force winds off of Lake Michigan. Mm. So in 300 years, that tree had not met that wind. And we have hollow-bone birds we're trying to care for. The birds care for us, too, because if we see they've been reduced in numbers, there's something wrong, and we've caused it, and we have to change our behavior. So butterflies, birds, bees are all indicators for us to adapt quickly to what we did wrong. <laughs> yeah, That's why that is important, and that's why I keep carving them. One year, I had 20 exhibits of my birds carved from spalted maple. Wow. That spalting happens in the maple because it is filled with water and vitamins and minerals that it's, it's 
um, brought up from the ground. When it is cut down at the peak of its livelihood, it becomes this wonderful graininess of um, that shows the, the texture of the wood. So somehow that connection is, although I know the science behind it, I know what I want to work with. If a visitor comes up and looks at that, they recognize that is really a piece of nature that's unusual. Mm. And it's unusual because it was a live, vibrant, vital tree blown over by a wind. The wind is caused by us and our carbon use. It's too excessive. Wow. And what would you like to see us as a society really do to help empower and support artists in their art practice to make it more environmentally friendly or simply to enable them to make more art in this sort of a realm? Well, there are a lot of eco-art groups and it tends to be people very involved in science and art um, or people who just love butterflies. I mean, that's... <laughs> but if all of these artists have really taken a financial blow over the last three years. There's been a lot of uh, stop gaps to keep artists um, uh, financed through and, and keep this, they have both rental of their home and their studio and many, many things. So we have double the expense, but a lot of that is to keep the certain materials separate from where we live um, so that we get that breather. Mm. So artists have um, more of a financial burden in that way. We, um, I tend to use the materials that are accessible and nearby. So for the last five to 10 years, while we've lost 130,000 trees, I've been carving wood. Um, previous to that, Chicago was a steel place. So in my many years ago, I did, I used a lot of steel because we had lots of steel around. It was like a reduce and recycle and reuse material, but we don't have that any longer. Um, so use what's local, mm -hmm. use what is um, excessive, make art with it, and then please purchase the art from eco-artists so that they can keep getting their message out there. Um, attend their exhibitions, um, support them, uh, uh, emotionally too. I would say that I went through decades of nobody's getting this message, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, but at the same time, I was so sure I was right. I kept doing it. And, um, and I'm so surprised that I just happened to be in this one place that's been at this since the 1970s. Um, and that it hasn't been the world because the message has gotten out there in many different ways. Um, so support your local eco-artists and give them opportunities to exhibit. The less extra jobs the artist has to have, the more they can make these statements. What a wonderful message to wrap things up on. Thank you so much, Margo. Thank you very much. It was a delight to talk with you. And thanks for your interest in the arts and communicating eco-art. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artcast Aotearoa, supported by Creative New Zealand and music by Pickle Darling. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it round. Ka kite.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.